Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small piece of American writing using the Library of America as my main source material. And right now we are looking at uh, black writers from the turn of the century. I have just completed a series on Charles W. Chestnut, and you can go back and listen to that. And now I'm beginning a series on the works of W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, And we're beginning with his PhD dissertation, which was published a year after he graduated as the, the first African-American to get a PhD from Harvard. And this dissertation is called The Suppression of the African Slave Trade. And I talked a little bit about it in my past episode. I also talked about my my concerns about the judgment made in, in including such a bulky text in this volume of the Library of America, especially because it seems they're only publishing one volume of Du Bois's work, at least for now. Um, I think there are better choices that could have been made on that. But nevertheless, it's an interesting text, and it's worth looking at, and it's worth reading. And I'm actually glad I I spent uh, a few hours with it. So anyways, you can go back and listen to the first episode where I give my comments on, on basically the first half of his dissertation. And that period covers the colonial period and the revolutionary period and the Haitian Revolution. And now, he's not interested in in slavery, really. He's interested in the slave trade. He's interested in the law behind the slave trade. And he's not even interested in the social history of the slave trade. He says nothing about slaves. He says very little about the economics of actual slave labor outside of the degree it, it contributed to the demand for importation. He's really interested in policy, in law, in courts, and in the debates that went around the efforts to suppress the international slave trade. He doesn't even talk about the internal slave trade much at all. It's basically not on his radar. I think there's just a few suggestions of the replacement of the international slave trade with the domestic slave trade. Um, now, his thesis, if we were to find a thesis, well, it's actually pretty clear, um, but his main thesis is that you need the moral argument, you need the political argument You need both of these to actually successfully suppress the slave trade, but you also need the economic transformation that makes slavery slavery less important. And he seems to think that no matter how progressive your political system is and the courts are, and no matter how progressive your moral standing may be, economics tends to trump that. So until there was a fundamental economic change in the United States, the the international slave trade wasn't going to be abolished. At the same time, though, I do think he has a lot of faith in the in law, and he thinks law is important, and he thinks that that can be something that can can push progress along even when the moral arguments failed. He certainly has doubts that the moral argument in itself can do much. It's an important part of building up the agitation against the slave trade, but it's not really going to make much much progress in itself because the political realities and certainly the economic realities are always going to be more important than whatever moral arguments. And he, he kind of goes through the colonial 
you know, region, region by region, the colonial America region by region. And he finds that like in the South, yeah, you had people saying the slave trade is bad and we shouldn't do it. But, you know, and the best example of this was Georgia, which actually started as a colony that forbade slavery. But as soon as the economic necessity came in, slaves were brought in. In the middle colonies, you had the Quakers in Pennsylvania who made the moral argument. But even there, they were kind of shouted down by the economic necessity of, of the landowners. It's only in New England where the economic foundation really wasn't such that it needed slavery, but there the moral argument could be allowed to win. So it's almost like you get the sense that the moral argument gets allowed to win in certain settings. And that's it's kind of a pessimistic argument. It's also very Marxist in, in its point of view by, by seeing the economic superstructure as more important than, than the moral argument. Now, the, we do get a lot of laws here. So, so one thing, we get a lot of details about the laws that go into it. And there's more than you would expect. And he actually gives you, I'm not going to talk about this. This doesn't count for the 100 pages at a time because the actual whole book is almost 400 pages, but almost half of it is appendices. The, and these appendices are mostly made up of, I mean, there's a bibliography here, but mostly it's, it's a listing of the different laws or the different regulations on the slave trade. And a lot of the stuff you see in the colonial period are, are comments on like tariffs on importation, different duty acts at the colonial level. Like here we got, and sometimes they're more interesting, like in 1698, October 8th, South Carolina issued an act for the encouragement of the importation of white servants. Quote, whereas the great number of Negroes of the late have been important to this colony may endanger the safety thereof if speedy care is not to be taken and encouragement given to the importation of white servants. And then there's policy here to promote um, the importation of servants. So the, it's, the text is useful because he, he's done the work of really going through all these colonial and early Republican laws and, and just listing them for you. So he, he's done that work for you. So this is a good reference to go to if you're interested in this topic. Now, of course, the major law that gets passed in early America before, let's say, the 1820s regarding this, the slave trade is the 1807 prohibition. And this is implied in the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution was part of the compromise between the slaveholding states and the, the states that ended slavery uh, in the revolutionary period. One of these compromises was that Congress could not ban, it could tax, but it couldn't ban the slave trade until 1808. And it didn't even say that explicitly. It said Congress can't ban the importation of certain individuals or something. I, I forget the exact wording, but Congress was forbidden from doing that. Um, and Du Bois, I think in a very pioneering addition to this book, talks about the Haitian Revolution as something that encouraged the the U.S. government from falling, falling through on this because it wasn't guaranteed that Congress would have passed the law in 1808 or 1807, whenever it was passed. It was passed in 1807, not implemented till 1808. There was no guarantee it would be done. And he thinks that the Haitian Revolution had a role in pushing concerns about the slave trade. And even where you had regulations against importing slaves or taxes on importing slaves in the colonial period, it tended to be tied to fears of insurrection. And, and so we got, if you want to read this text for evidence of black agency and slave resistance. It's it's here, and it does seem slaves played a role in at least fomenting the the threat of resistance that didn't help contribute to laws that limited and regulated slavery. Now, in the second half of the book, which I'm going to focus on 
in this episode, we get basically the post-1808 situation. And so at, that, at this point, the slave trade is, is legal, is illegal after 1808. So after the, the act is passed in 1807, signed by Thomas Jefferson. And here's what Du Bois said about it. The first great goal of anti-slavery effort in the United States has been since the revolution, the suppression of the slave trade by national law. It would hardly be, be too much to say that the Haitian Revolution, in addition to its influence in the years from 1791 to 1906, was one of the main causes that rendered the accomplishment of this aim possible at the earliest constitutional moment. To the great influence of the fears of the South was added the failure of the French designs on Louisiana, of which Toussaint Louverture was the most probable cause. The cessation of Louisiana in 1803 challenged and aroused the North on the slavery question again, put Georgia and South Carolina slave traders in the saddle, to the dismay of the border states, and brought the whole slave question vividly before the public consciousness. End quote. And again, I think this is a really important contribution. We take it for granted now, Atlantic historians, early Americanists, of how important Haiti was in the debates about slavery in the United States. But I don't know how common it was to talk about this 100 years ago. So I think that's, it seems to me, a, a significant contribution to the scholarship Du Bois makes here. Now, with this law passed, really then it becomes a question of suppression. How much is the federal government, state governments, going to really put the money where their mouth is on the question of slave importation? And Du Bois is pretty skeptical of how effective regulation was in general. He actually calls chapter, I guess it's eight of this book, the period of attempted suppression, 1807 to 1824, saying that there wasn't that much. It was talked about, but and it was illegal, but there was very little actual suppression of the slave trade taking place. People who were captured or arrested for importing were, were let go with a slap on the wrist. There wasn't that much. There was whole moral questions of what to do with illegally imported men. I, I guess I can't legally call it. I'm not sure if they would have legally been slaves. I guess not. But you know, these people were brought in illegally, what to do with them, right? And it's and it's something the U.S. government equivocated on, according to Du Bois, both in light punishments and in basically keeping these people in bondage. You even have, and he quotes some people here, you even have Southerners saying, yeah, maybe it was illegal to bring in these slaves, but it's actually better to keep them as slaves in the United States and descend into Africa because their condition is better. And this was the old pro-slavery argument. That was common at the time that was based on this idea that, you know, it was better to be a slave in America than free in, in Africa. And then we get the question of the death penalty in which many Americans just, thought it distasteful to try to 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 force the death penalty on for smugglers of of men and women just for straight up racist reasons had they been white people being imported they wouldn't have been so skittish about using the death penalty and some people say it outright that you know white people shouldn't die for essentially importing black people and Du Bois goes over a handful of cases that again, show that the, the U.S. government wasn't that fully committed to suppressing the slave trade, at least not at the end of the day when it came to actual policing and actually punishing smugglers, I guess we should call them. 
Um, what else does he have in this chapter? Basically, he comes to the conclusion that the slave trade goes on and importation goes on pretty much with, with very little restrictions. Now, the numbers are going to be hard to get at, and he's not very strong on the numbers. You know, of course, before it was illegal, you had clear tariffs and taxes and, and you know, it was all on the up and up. So you, you had records, but it was a little bit harder to get records for this period. And Du Bois doesn't really have the evidence to make a strong case of how many slaves were imported illegally, you know, after 1808, from 1808 to, to 1865. But he tries. Now, it changes in 1825, and Du Bois writes, There appears to have been little positive evidence of a large illicit importation into the country for a decade after 1825. It's hardly possible, however, considering the activities in the trade, that slaves were not largely imported. Indeed, when we note how the laws were continuously broken in other respects, the absence of evidence of petty smuggling becomes presumptive evidence that collusive or tacit understanding of officers and citizens allowed the trade to some extent. Finally, it must be noted that all this time, scarcely a man suffered for participating in the trade because the loss of the Africans and more rarely of the ship, beyond the loss of the Africans and more rarely the ship, red-handed slavers caught in the act and convicted were often, were too often like Locosta of South Carolina subjects to executive clemency. Um, so again, he he seems to think it, it declined. Now what happens in after 1825 and it seems what happens and he covers this in chapter nine of the book which is called the international status of the slave trade is you just have much more international pressure and international policing of the slave trade basically britain steps up and to a lesser degree other european powers where the united states was not really willing to to step up to regulate the slave trade or suppress the slave trade I'm not going to say much about this chapter unless you're really interested in the treaties and the negotiations involved in in the slave trade. There's really not that much there of interest. It covers the whole period from basically from American independence until the Civil War, however. So it's a it's a it's a fairly short chapter, but it does talk about the various treaties that to one degree or another talked about the slave trade. And and there was increased effort by particularly the British to to suppress the slave trade. Now, in chapter 10, Du Bois then studies why why there couldn't have been a greater effort by Americans to to end the slave trade. And he comes to the conclusion that essentially is tied to the rise of cotton and the rise of the cotton south. And as you remember from US history courses, if you've taken them, it's really the period the revolutionary period was actually a period of great crisis for slavery in the United States. You had the American Revolution was in many ways a slave revolt. You had in some states 30% or some even more of the slaves running away. You had the British presenting an alternative to slavery. And many blacks served in the British army with the promise of their freedom. This goes back to the Lord Dunmore Proclamation. And then you had many states that took the revolutionary rhetoric about freedom seriously and put in their constitutions prohibitions against slavery. And then, of course, you had the long-term decline of the tobacco economy, especially in Virginia, kind of coming to a head. And it seemed, you know, questionable whether slavery would survive. Now, what changes? Of course, the cotton gin changes this, right? Which allows the cultivation of cotton across much of the American Southwest. And then, of course, you have the rise of industrialization in Great Britain, what Du Bois here calls in section 74 of the book, an economic revolution. 
And now he gets back to it. He's able to get back to his main argument that he's making throughout this text. And that is at the end of the day, the economic argument wins out and the, the moral argument and the political argument is not really sustainable in the face of, of economic necessity. Quote, here it was that the fatal mistake of compromising with slavery in the beginning and the policy of laissez-faire pursued thereafter became painfully manifest. For instead, now of a healthy, normal economic development along proper industrial lines, we have an abnormal and fatal rise in the slave laboring large farming system, which before it was realized had so intertwined itself with and braced itself upon the economic forces of an industrial age that a vast and terrible civil war was necessary to displace it. The tendencies to a patriarchal serfdom recognizable in the age of Washington and Jefferson began slowly but surely to disappear. And in the second quarter of the century, Southern slavery was irresistibly changing from a family institution to an industrial system. And with the rise of the Cotton South, the rising economic power of the planter class in the South, their growing political power. And again, if you've taken your U.S. history class, you know about this rising political power. It, you know, this idea of a slave power conspiracy was certainly part of the abolitionist rhetoric, but there's some truth behind it, right? You have step after step, you know, Southern presidents. You have, of course, because of the three-fifths clause, you had overrepresentation of the white South in Congress. And, you know, in crisis after crisis, you have the pushing of slave power into the West. Now, Du Bois focuses, is focusing on the regulation of the slave trade. And in every institution, in every agency that's going to be responsible for regulating international commerce and therefore be responsible for fulfilling the 1808 ban, 1807 act, but it was, it was implemented in 1808, you're going to have a Southern contingency and a Southern Southerners there who are going to have it in their interest, maybe not to, to overturn the law, but to look the other way and to allow the importation of slaves to continue. And then we get to chapter 11 called The Final Crisis, which covers 1850 to 1870. So it's really covering the, the emancipation generation and the Civil War. So we have a couple issues here. One is what was the Confederacy's point of view on the slave trade? And then but, but Du Bois comes back to his, his key point here, and it's stated like this. Um, An economic system based on slave labor will find sooner or later that the demand for the cheapest slave labor cannot long be withstood. Once degrade the labor so he cannot assert his own rights, and there's but one limit below which his price cannot be reduced. That limit is not his physical well-being, for it may be, and in the Gulf states it was, cheaper to work him rapidly to death, the limit of simply the cost of procuring him and keeping him alive in a profitable length of time. Only the moral sense of a community can help, can keep helpless labor from sinking to this level. And when a community had once been debauched by slavery, its moral sense offers little resistance to economic demand, end quote. And this is on page 168 of the Library of America version. And I, I think this is the key point Du Bois makes. And you don't really have to read in detail the whole book because it really comes down to this issue that the moral argument is really helpless against the economic narrative. But what happens in 1850? Well, there's more laws are passing commercial conventions and, and attempts to kind of regulate this. What happens after 1860 is the Confederacy more or less maybe gives a little bit of lip service to to this to ending the importation of slaves. And of course, it's very difficult for them to do with the embargo anyways, during the war. 
But the Confederacy did open the door for southern states if they wanted to, to reopen the slave trade. How much of this was done is it's not something Du Bois has that much evidence on. I, I presume it wasn't that much. But there's a little section here about the laws of it. And I think maybe a weakness of this book overall is that he's so focused on the law that you're not really getting the social historical dimension of it. And you're not even fully getting the economic argument all the time because he really doesn't necessarily have that research at hand. So it's a really wonderful and I think it holds up as a summary of, of the legal argument. Now, I'm sure there's been other scholars who have done this in more detail, but... You know, it's, this is one of those issues that, you know, I've read a lot of books on slavery over the years, you know, probably over 100. Um, but, you know, I've never read something on this issue of the suppression of the slave trade. And, you know, I've only really read two books, I think, on the slave trade itself. Mostly the stuff I've read on slavery has dealt with the plantation itself and the social history of slavery. So it's kind of it was an eye opening experience looking at this this book, to say the least. Um. Now, the cha final chapter, chapter 12, is just his kind of restatement of his thesis. It's called The Essentials of the Struggle. And it has basically three parts where he just summarizes the three kind of pillars that you need for, for shifting of the labor system in the United States. And one is the moral movement. Then you need the political movement, the political power behind it, and the means to enforce laws. And that has to be joined with the moral movement to some degree. And then you need an economic transformation, a rebalancing of the economy that creates also space for people with vested interests in controlling labor to see the advantages of, of ending the slave trade. You know, and, and he does think that, you know, to some degree, tariffs and taxes and these things, you know, had some effect. But, you know, throughout the book, we get much more this we get a feeling that much more important was like the threat of resistance and the threat of rebellion uh, was much more effective at, at limiting the importation of slaves and encouraging southern states and southern colonies at the time to to stop bringing in so many slaves that it was it was really tied more to the sphere of insurrection than like a tariff or a tax another example he gets at a, at kind of the weakness of of the econ or the power of the econo economic movement over the moral movement is when he talks about colonization. And I don't think he's a supporter of colonization. I, I've read enough of his works to, to know he doesn't think much of, of the colonization movement. And if you don't know, the colonization movement was this effort really in the revolutionary period and a little bit past it to end slavery in the United States, but then keep the, the republic white. And that meant, because the question is, what do you do with these former slaves? Do they vote? Or do they become citizens? And most people, most white people in the revolutionary generation said, no, clearly not. So we need to get them out, get them, and where to send them, right? And the idea was to send them to Africa, right? I, I hesitate to say back to Africa because many of these people were, were African-American born in the United States or born in the American colonies. But anyways, the kind of the phrase, the phraseology of the time was this kind of back to Africa movement. Now, morally, some people like this. Some anti-slavery folks kind of like this as, as a moral choice. Now, we can debate how moral it was, and Du Bois certainly does. But it, in any case, it was present, presented as a moral solution to the problem of slavery. But it was so costly, right, that no one wanted to actually pay the money to relocate 
thousands and thousands of slaves. So that just kind of fills it out because it wasn't cost effective. So that's just another example of how morality has to take a backseat to um, sorry, it, it took a backseat to to the political and economic. He says at one point, it was only a peculiar and almost fortuitous commingling of moral, political, and economic motives that eventually crushed America, African slavery and its handmade in the slave trade in America. And then his conclusion for what, what this means for his world, for a country coming to terms with with Jim, the rise of Jim Crow and disfranchisement and, and segregation, all these things, is, is a kind of a similar argument that it's, it can't be enough to promote the moral argument. There has to be a struggle on the economic and the political side as well. And I think you see this really in a lot of his other works. Like in what we're going to look at next, The Souls of Black Folk, he talks about the moral, but he also talks about the economic and the political necessity. And he, he really sees it as a joint effort that has to be made. And I guess that gets us through the suppression of the slave trade in, in America. Or the suppression of the African slave trade is what it's called. Just to the United States of America. Again, not one of his major works, uh, but I think it has a lot to teach us. Now, the, now you have these appendices to the, to the book as well. Um, it basically okay, the first appendix is essentially state and colonial laws up until the American Revolution. And a lot of these are, again, commercial laws that may have a mentioning of a tariff on importing people or, or some states or some colonies prohibited it. And then you have a bunch of laws passed in the revolutionary period as these new states reworked their legal systems to, to independence. Appendix B is called a chrono chronological conspectus of state, national, and international legislation, 1788 to 1871. So this deals more with federal law and international um, agreements that were made. And there's a lot of those as well. A lot of treaties are mentioned. And again, it's, it's set up like Appendix A for each law. He doesn't give the whole law, but he gives the, the provisions that are relevant for the slave trade. And this part alone is almost 70 pages. Appendix C is, is cases of, of ships that were like captured or, or tried. And so he's got a listing of different cases. And some of these are actually pretty intriguing. Like if you just listen to it uh, or read them. In 1841, November 7th, the Creole of Richmond, Virginia, transporting slaves to New Orleans. The crew mutiny and take her to Nassau, British West Indies. The slaves were freed and Great Britain refused indemnity. Um, and I'm sure there's histories on each of these that could be um, revealed and and discussed. And of course, you have the 1839 case, the, the Amistad, and all these. And these are, I think, just useful as references. You don't get a lot of detail for them, but if you wanted to research these cases, he, he kind of gives you the foundation and he sort of tells you where to find the evidence too. He gives footnotes here. So that's a useful contribution. Then D is, is a bibliography, which includes the colonial laws and then just a general bibliography of, of books he read. And then you have an index. So overall, the book 
is actually 350 pages long, but only around 200 of that is actual text of it. And a lot of that can be sort of skimmed over. So I, I think it's the kind of book you could just spend a couple hours with and get a good idea of what he's saying. And I, I think it's a valuable addition, even though I still hold, I wouldn't have made, I would have included Black Reconstruction in America rather than this. But uh, nevertheless, it is what we get. And, and I'm glad I, I was able to look at it. So I guess that does it for Du Bois's PhD dissertation. And I'll be back next time with The Souls of Black Folk. And I, I think I'll spend two episodes on The Souls of Black Folk because they're around 200 pages long. I hope to only spend two. I, I might end up have, have to say a little bit more about that because it's so rich. And it's one of the most beautiful works, I think, of, of American writing, certainly of the, of the 20th century. So I, I may be tempted to dwell in a little bit longer than than than, tw than just two episodes, but we'll see. So again, thank you so much for listening. If you have any of your own comments about this book or the slave trade or any, or if you have any questions, please uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And please subscribe to this, this podcast. Um, I'm going to be continuing to include content on American writers and, you know, and see how it goes. Um, but again, thank thank you so much for for listening and supporting this this podcast. I'll see you next time with the souls of black folk. The moonlight. I'm walking through that moonlight. Lay this body down.